On this first day, uh, or this first Sunday rather, of 2024, I thought we could spend some time looking at a few verses from Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's a great way to start the new year together. Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 12 through 26. But while you're turning to that passage, I want you to use your imaginations for a moment. Um, And I want you to imagine that we are members of the First Baptist Church in Philippi, uh, a Roman colony in Greece. Uh, The year is 60 AD, and our friend and the founder of our congregation, the Apostle Paul, is in prison in Rome. He's on trial for spreading disruption among the Jews, and he's waiting for the trial to begin. He's an awaiting trial prisoner. The outcome of this trial is very uncertain. Either Paul is going to be acquitted of all charges and released, or else he is going to be found guilty and sentenced to death. It's very unclear what is going to happen. Either of those two are very real possibilities. As a church, understandably, we've been concerned about Paul. And so we've sent one of our members, a man by the name of Epaphroditus, to visit Paul in prison to see how he's doing, to give him a financial gift of support. And we're all together now on Sunday morning, and Epaphroditus has returned from his trip. He comes into church with a papyrus scroll in his hand, and we know immediately that this is a letter from Paul to tell us in his own words how he's doing. And so we quickly all sit down, Epaphroditus breaks the seal on the scroll and begins to read. And we sit there breathless. What is Paul going to say? How is he doing? Is he in good health? What are the conditions like in prison? Well, Epaphroditus begins to read, and we are all astonished, because instead of telling us how he is doing, Paul tells us how the gospel is doing. Let's have a look from verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me... To live is Christ, 
and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. This is God's word. The key verse in this remarkable passage is verse 21, where Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's an astounding statement. And I wonder, as we're sat here on the very first Sunday of 2024, whether we could echo those words in our own lives. I don't think any of us have a problem with the first six words of that sentence, for to me to live is, because all of us live for something, often for very good things too. I wonder how we would end that sentence in our own lives. For to me to live is golf. (laughs) Or for to me to live is family. For me to live is work. For me to live is money. For me to live is my next holiday. For me to live is the stock exchange. Sadly, I find so often in my own life that the sentence would read, For to me to live is me. I remember one writer lamenting, seven billion people live in this world and I can only muster thoughts for one, me. And so I'm deeply challenged by Paul's words here, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For Paul, Christ was the very center of his life. It hadn't always been like that, as I'm sure you'll remember. Paul had been Saul, the Pharisee, a man who was violently opposed to Jesus and the Christian faith and who imprisoned and killed Christians. But Paul's life was dramatically changed by an encounter with the living Lord Jesus and by the realization that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And from that moment on, Paul was totally committed, body, mind, and soul, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to spend a few moments today looking at Paul's commitment to Christ. But let me just say at the outset that we don't get Paul's kind of commitment to Jesus through three easy steps. It's only when we, like Paul, capture something of the beauty and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, expressed in his mercy towards us undeserving and rebellious sinners, that our lives are changed and he then becomes our first priority. In fact, as we've just sung, it's as we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face that the things of earth grow strangely dim and that we're changed indeed by his grace. So Paul's life was totally committed to Christ, but at the moment that commitment was undergoing three very real and painful tests. And the first test was Paul's imprisonment. At the beginning of this passage, Paul speaks about what has happened to me, 
which what must be one of the most understated phrases in the entire New Testament. Paul doesn't go on to describe what has happened to him, so let me outline for it, outline it for you real, real quickly. Paul had been traveling through a number of cities in Asia and Europe on what we know as his third missionary journey, preaching the gospel in these cities and encouraging new churches. And he ended his tour back in Jerusalem. One day when he was in the temple, some Jewish men stirred up a crowd against him, accusing him of bringing Gentiles into the temple, a charge that wasn't actually true. But the mob attacks Paul and begins quite literally to kill him. Fortunately, news reaches the Roman commander of the troops in the city, and he sends some soldiers into the temple, and they arrest Paul. Uh, the Romans thought that Paul was some kind of rebel leader, and so they keep him locked up. Uh, they're not quite sure, in fact, what to do with him. And for two years, Paul sat in prison, going through a number of different trials. Uh, we all know that our own legal system works slowly, uh, perhaps because it's based on Dutch-Roman law, all of these trials. Eventually, Paul became so tired of this that he appealed to Caesar. In other words, he asked that his case be presented at the Supreme Court. And so he was sent from Jerusalem to Rome. On the way to Rome, he was shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and on the first night there, he was bitten by a poisonous snake. After three months on the island of Malta, they set sail again for Rome, and Paul is placed in custody where he remains for another two years. And Paul sums up all of that in this little phrase, what has happened to me? So the context for our key verse then, in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, is important. Paul isn't uh, gently recovering from Christmas and lazily thinking about the new year ahead. He's in prison. He's physically chained by three feet of chain to a Roman soldier. Can you imagine how frustrating that must have been for Paul, who wanted to continue to go to different cities preaching the gospel? Paul had, in fact, always wanted to go to Rome. Uh, he writes to the Christians in Rome, in Romans chapter 1, and he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Paul had wanted to go to Rome as a preacher, now he's there as a prisoner. He's longing to be out there, instead he's chained up here. And so what do we see? Do we see him pacing up and down his prison cell, bemoaning the fact that he's not free to do what he wants? No, Paul might be chained, but the gospel of Jesus Christ certainly isn't chained. Paul uses this as an opportunity. Paul has got a captive audience, quite literally. He's chained to a soldier, and every six hours that guard would be chained. So four men every day. And you can just imagine one of the guards walking down the corridor uh, of the prison towards Paul's cell, and he passes another guard, and the guard asks him, where are you off to? And he replies, well, I've got Paul this afternoon. And the guard says, oh, oh yes, I had him yesterday, six straight hours. I know all about it. I can tell you anything you want to about this new faith. Good luck to you, mate. And the result of Paul's being chained is there for us in verse 13. 
As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard, that's literally, literally the praetorium, the elite guard who were in charge of guarding the emperor, it's become clear to them and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. There was a second result too in verse 14. Paul says, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. In the 1960s, five missionaries were martyred by Alka Indians in Ecuador. Among them was a young man named Jim Elliot. And their deaths sent shockwaves throughout the world. But their example also encouraged Christians throughout the world. In the following months, mission organizations were inundated with offers to take the place of the men who'd been killed. One Christian magazine counted 600 missionaries who claimed that Jim Elliot's example was the main reason for them going overseas. And the same is true for Paul here. His example encourages other believers to preach God's word more boldly. And so Paul can say, for to me to live is Christ, even if my freedom is limited, in order that Christ may be known by others, both inside and outside the prison. Secondly, Paul's commitment to Christ was also being tested by opposition. Paul says that some of the believers have been encouraged to speak the word of God more boldly, but those preachers were a very mixed bag. Uh, they consisted of two groups. If you look in verse 15, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. So there were some who preached Christ from good motives, but there were others who were busy slandering Paul, making things difficult for him. Now, these weren't false teachers, people who were preaching a false gospel. Paul would have had something to say about that. In his letters, Paul has no problem naming false teachers and warning people against them. No, these people were preaching the gospel, but instead of their preaching aiming to exalt Christ, they wanted their preaching to exalt themselves and humiliate Paul. They said bad things about him. They wanted to steal his followers away from him. They kicked him while he was down. And what could Paul do? He couldn't write to the newspapers, you know, put a letter in the Jerusalem Times. He couldn't get a lawyer and sue for defamation of character. He couldn't even confront these people in front of the church. And so what does he do? He rejoices. Look at verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. I don't think that this means that Paul wasn't hurt. I'm sure that it was a painful experience. But his overall concern is for the gospel. Christ is preached, and Christ being preached is more important to Paul than his own reputation. 
Paul loved Christ more than his freedom, he loved Christ more than his reputation, and he loved Christ more than life itself. That's the third test of his loyalty to Jesus. Uh, Paul is facing the very real possibility of his death. He doesn't know from one day to the next whether he will live or die. He sat in a prison cell in Rome waiting for the Emperor Nero to find the time and the inclination to hear his case. And as I said, the outcome of the case is far from certain. Paul is facing the very real possibility of death. And yet listen to what he says from verse 22. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul faces the possibilities of life and death, and he says, well, if I were to be given the choice, I'm not quite sure which I would choose. Well, I could help him. (laughs) Life! You're supposed to choose life, Paul. That's the one thing to be held on to at all costs. People have done all sorts of things to preserve their lives. They've begged and pleaded and lied and committed crimes just to hold on to their lives. I'm reminded of the last words of Queen Elizabeth I. As she lay dying, she was said to have said, All my possessions for a moment of time. In our world, death is the ultimate tragedy. It's a loss. In fact, we even say that to people who are bereaved. We say, I'm sorry about your loss. Paul doesn't see death as a loss. Quite the opposite. He sees it as a gain. I have loved Christ since the day he met me on the road to Damascus. I've sought to know him, this side of the curtain. My life is dedicated to him. And so to die is to have even more of Christ, to know him fully, even as I am fully known. In this life-threatening situation, I don't know what to choose. I desire to stay on earth and serve God's people, and I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Can we honestly say that? Just by the way, do you notice the wonderful way in which Paul describes death for a Christian? He says to depart and be with Christ. For a Christian to be absent from the body is to be immediately present with the Lord. I used to think about that when our girls were smaller. We'd go out visiting, perhaps a church service or a friend's home, and they would fall asleep while we were there. And we'd pick them up, we'd put them in the car seat, we'd drive them all the way home, take them out of the car seat, put them into the bed. For for them, they'd been at church, and the next thing they were aware of was waking up at home. For a Christian, to die is to fall asleep, and the next thing to be conscious of is waking up in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is such an important reminder to us that even death itself for a Christian is gain. And if that is so, then there is nothing that can frighten us in 2024. 
So while Paul's life ambition is Christ, that commitment is undergoing three very painful tests, imprisonment, slander, the possibility of death. And I wonder what tests our own commitment to Christ will undergo this year. Perhaps it will be imprisonment, Uh, hopefully not literal imprisonment, but maybe feeling trapped in a work situation, uh, trapped in a marriage, trapped in a difficult relationship. Uh, Maybe it will be uh, opposition, being misunderstood, uh, being slandered, being left out, having a difficult relationship. Maybe it will be death, the death of a loved one, ill health, a terminal disease. Who knows what we might face in this year? Or perhaps those things are already present even as we begin this new year. We're already facing a difficult situation, a difficult relationship, sickness, bereavement. And the temptation, I think, then for us in that situation is to say, for to me to live is Christ, but. To me to live is Christ, but first let me get through this sickness For to me to live is Christ, but first let me get a job. For to me to live is Christ, but first let me get through this difficult period. If that's what we're tempted to say, then there is one very important three-letter word in verse 20 that we need to look at again. Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now... As always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. That little word now is so important. Paul had every excuse not to live for Christ now. He could have said, well, I'll wait until I'm out of prison. Then I'll be ready to live and work for Christ. Or I'll wait until the conflict is over and people start liking me again. Then I'll live for Christ. Or I'll wait until the trial is over and I know the outcome. But no, I pray that now Christ will be exalted in my body, whether that's in my living body or even in my dead body. That little word now is so important. There is no other time to know and love Christ. There is no other time to receive his invitation of free forgiveness. There is no other time to live for him. No other place or set of circumstances in which to serve him. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, I tell you now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. The writer to the Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Psalmist writes in Psalm 118, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. There is no other time, there are no other circumstances in which to live for Christ. I can't wait until things change. There is only now. In prison, in persecution, in illness, in conflict, even in the face of death. A few days ago, I was reading the Guardian newspaper online uh, when I came across this news story. It's headed, Happy to be Alive. U.S. woman gets limbs amputated after kidney stone surgery. 
So Cindy Mullins from Kentucky in the United States was battling with a kidney infection uh, just a few days before Christmas. Uh, she received treatment, but the kidney stone caused a major infection and she became septic. She was rushed to hospital and she was sedated for several days uh, while the doctors battled to save her life. And when she woke up from the sedation, she discovered that in order to save her life, the doctors had been forced to amputate both her legs from the knee downward. And they told her that they would now have to amputate both her arms from the elbow downward, otherwise she would die. Uh, they performed that operation a few days ago. Imagine, you've got a kidney infection and within a heartbeat, you lose all four of your limbs. Uh, Cindy is a nurse, so her career has been upended. Uh, she has a husband called DJ, um, whom she's been with since she was 17, and two sons aged 12 and 7. This is what she said in the article. I'm just so happy to be alive. I get to see my kids. I get to see my family. I get to have my time with my hus husband. These are the cards I've been dealt. This is the hand I'm going to play. As you can imagine, uh, the family have been overwhelmed by love and support from their community, which is now spreading throughout the world. Her friends, her family have raised several thousand dollars to support their family. But Cindy then said these words right at the end of the article, the Guardian newspaper in the UK. She said, if one person can see God from all this, that made it all worthwhile. And if you look carefully at the photo, you can see that Cindy is wearing a t-shirt that says, Smile, Jesus loves you. What an incredible testimony from this young lady to the watching world. I desire that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether that's a whole body or a broken body. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can we say these words this morning at the beginning of a new year? Actually, they're, they're words that we need to review at the beginning of each day. These aren't words that you can just say once and then get them over with. What, what is my morning motto? Is it, for to me to live is me? Or can I say, for to me to live is Christ? As John Stott puts it, we may have to say it tremblingly, we certainly will have to say it humbly, we probably need to say it fearfully, but can we say it honestly and prayerfully this morning? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain.